Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, well, you can grab a Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you can find that on page 6. In case you haven't been with us over the last few weeks, we've been making our way through the story of Noah's Ark as the Lord judged the entire earth for its wickedness with a great flood, but preserved Noah and his family and representatives of the animal kingdom on the ark so that they could survive the flood and come out on the other side to make a fresh start. And now as we finish the story this morning, the Lord is going to establish his covenant with Noah that he promised back in chapter 6, even as things go wrong once again. And so we're in Genesis chapter 9, and we're going to begin reading with verse 1. It says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And so last week we saw that after a year of waiting, the Lord brought Noah, his family, and the animals off of the ark and into a new creation that was ready for them to start over. Uh, and Noah made burnt offerings and sacrifices as thanksgiving for the Lord's provision. And now, as we pick up here in chapter 9, the Lord blesses Noah and his sons and says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And if that sounds familiar, it's because it's the exact same instructions that the Lord gave to Adam and Eve back in chapter 2. So as Noah and his family come into a new creation, they are also given a new commission to fill the earth with God's image bearers. At the same time, in verse 2, we see that something significant is different now. Right, back in chapter 2, the Lord called mankind to exercise dominion over the animals of the earth. But now the Lord reveals that he has placed the fear and the dread of humans upon the animals. Right, so you go outside with a kid, and the kid sees a squirrel that looks really cute, and it wants to run up to the squirrel and pet it, but the squirrel runs up a tree. Why is that? Well, it's because on the other side of the flood, God has given animals an instinctive fear of humans. And in verse 3, we see that in large part, this is because animals will now be food for humans. Right, back in chapter 2, again, we saw that originally God gave the green plants and the fruits 
of the garden for people to eat. But now, from this point on, meat is going to be on the menu. The Lord says, if it moves, you can eat it. And all of the Cajuns said amen. (laughs) And so, uh, as as we move forward, the one restriction that we see in verse 4 is that people are not to eat flesh with its blood, meaning its, its life. And I don't think that that expression means that we are not supposed to ingest blood on any level, because I don't think it's possible to completely drain all of the blood from meat. The, the point, which is going to be made later on in the sacrificial laws, is that blood is the source of life. And so out of respect for the life of the animals, uh, we are supposed to drain the blood from meat before we eat it, in contrast to a, a wild animal that would just dig right in. And then in verse 5, the Lord turns to address violence against humans, either by an animal or by another person. And he says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. Right? And this, this reckoning that he uh, requires is, and institutes here is the death penalty. Right? Verse 6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And the reason for this that we see at the end of verse 6 is because people have been made in the image of God. Right? People have been made in the image of God, which sets them apart from everything else in all of creation. Right? When, a, when a lion kills a zebra in Africa, nobody tries to press charges on that right? because it's an animal killing an animal. And that's what animals do. But when a human is killed, whether by an animal or by another person, we, we intuitively realize that this is a different kind of situation. Right? Human life bears God's image. And because of that, it has a value that should be honored and protected, and to take that life is a serious offense. And so we've seen now the, the story of Cain murdering Abel, And we've seen the story of of Lamech bragging about his violence and killing another person. And then over time, we saw that the entire world was filled and characterized by violence, which is one of the reasons that the flood came in the first place. But now going forward, the Lord intends to curb violence by instituting the death penalty for taking a human life. And of course, we see this principle reinforced in the Old Testament. We know that the sixth commandment is you shall not murder. And the Mosaic laws are full of situational instructions for for handling everything from accidental manslaughter all the way to cold blood murder. Now, it's not explicitly stated here, but many scholars have seen the establishment of human government in these verses. Uh, That's because there's an assumption there's going to have to be some kind of authority in place to establish the facts of a given situation. Uh, to determine whether or not a murder has taken place and to uh, execute the appropriate punishment. Uh, but whether or not that is true, what is crystal clear is that we should recognize the sanctity of human life. Right? From, from womb to the tomb, the Lord takes human life with the utmost seriousness, and we should also. Now, before we move on, there's one other, at least one other implication in this passage that a lot of people may not appreciate, but it's something that needs to be said. And that is that animals are not people. Animals are not people. It needs to be said because we live in a culture that increasingly devalues human life while elevating animals. You're watching TV and and you see a commercial for dog food and it says, you wouldn't eat this stuff. 
so why would you give it to your dog? And the short answer is because I'm a person and my dog is a dog. That's why I'll give it to the dog. All right? uh, there are people who claim that it's immoral to eat meat because animals are people too. But no, they're not people. People are people. One of the, the tenets of evolutionary theory is that humans are ultimately on the same level with all of the other creatures. But the Bible clearly teaches that that is not the case. Humans have been uniquely made in the image of God. Now, of course, that's not to say that, that animals are worthless. Certainly part of our role as humans is to take care of animals. And so there's, there's absolutely no place for animal cruelty or neglect. But while animals are cute and many of them make great pets, they've not been made in the image and likeness of God, and they do not have the same value and worth that humans have. And so we need to resist the kind of thinking that says otherwise. Now, having said that, the section ends with the Lord repeating his command for, for people to, to be fruitful and multiply throughout the earth. And so the Lord has recommissioned Noah and his sons to populate the earth with added protections for human life. And now the Lord's going to establish his covenant with Noah as we pick up again, beginning in verse 8. It says, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. And so as we pick up again in verse 8, the Lord establishes the covenant that he promised to make with Noah all the way back in chapter 6. And he commits himself to never again flood the entire earth in judgment of sin. Now, you may remember from a couple of weeks ago that we defined a covenant as a, a binding relational agreement between two parties that designates the responsibilities that they have toward each other. It usually includes blessings for abiding by the covenant, penalties for breaking the covenant, and it also usually involves a sign that confirms participation in the covenant. But this particular covenant is what we would call an unconditional unilateral covenant, which simply means that all of it depends completely on God. Okay, there, there's nothing that people have to do in order to maintain or benefit from this covenant. This is something that God simply promises to do uh, from, from now to the rest of time. This covenant is also universal in the sense that it is not reserved only for God's covenant people, but all people in all places and all times will benefit from this promise, including the animals also, as we see in verse 10. 
And then in verse 12, we see that the sign of this covenant is the rainbow, that multicolored arc that often appears in the sky when it has rained. Now, some people would say, well, a rainbow is just a physical phenomenon that happens when light beams reflect and refract off of water droplets in the sky. And of course, that's true. It is a physical phenomenon, but it's also more than that. It is a spiritual symbol that the Lord gives meaning to. Every time the rainbow appears, it is a reminder of God's covenant never to exercise mass judgment on the earth through a flood again. Now, we should be clear that this covenant does not mean that God will never execute judgment against sin in any way ever again, because as we've already established previously, there is going to be a full and final judgment against sin uh, that determines people's eternal destinies. And throughout the Bible, we find instances where the Lord determines to execute a limited judgment. The point of this covenant is that despite the universal sinfulness of mankind that deserves to receive judgment, God will not execute a universal judgment against the earth with a flood as he has done here in Genesis 6 through 8. And so this is a great moment. This is a a wonderful moment. Noah and his family and the animals are off the ark. We have a rainbow in the sky and, and everything is ready for humanity to move forward. Unfortunately, history is going to repeat itself as we'll see when we pick up again in verse 18. It says, The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, "'Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers.'" He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And so as we pick up here in verse 18, the story reminds us once again that Noah's sons were named Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And it tells us that Ham was the father of Canaan, which is going to be uh, coming into play in just a moment. And so all of the people who are alive on the earth today find their ancestry in these three men, these three sons of Noah. Well, in verse 20, we fast forward a certain amount of time. We see that like Adam, Noah became a man of the soil. Adam was placed in the garden to work the ground. And now Noah begins to be a man of the of the soil. Whatever he did before the flood, uh, he now works the ground afterwards. And one of the things that Noah plants is a vineyard. And on one occasion, as he drinks his wine, he becomes drunk. And he ends up passing out inside of his tent in an embarrassing uh, position. And in verse 22, Ham walks in and sees Noah laying there 
and then goes outside and tells his brothers about it. Now, over the centuries, uh, there's been no shortage of speculation about what Ham actually does here. And the reason for that is because the language that is used to describe the situation can carry a number of different connotations in, in different contexts. And so uh, there are all kinds of suggestions out there that I will leave you to look up uh, if you are interested in those. But I think the issue ultimately comes down to the fact that what Ham does here is the opposite of what Shem and Japheth do. Right? When, when they hear what Ham tells them, Shem and Japheth walk into the tent backwards with a garment in order to cover Noah without looking at him. The text is very clear that they do not look at him. And so I think that Ham's sin here is that he dishonors his father. He dishonors his father by by taking advantage of his vulnerability and trying to draw his brother's attention to it. In other words, instead of protecting his father's dignity, Ham chooses to make a spectacle of it. And he he uses the opportunity to exploit Noah for entertainment. And and I recognize that that probably doesn't hit us in the 21st century in in the same way that it would have the the original readers. Because the shame and the dishonor of, of exposing your father like that would have been absolutely scandalous to the ancient world. And so as Noah eventually wakes up and and he knows what happened, he responds by pronouncing a curse against Canaan and his descendants and by blessing Shem, Japheth, and their descendants. Now, many people have noticed, and it's true, that this is the only time in this entire story that Noah speaks. Throughout this, this whole story, God has been the only speaker, and Noah has simply silently acted. But in this moment, Noah speaks, and as he does, he invokes cursing and blessing among his descendants. And the most interesting thing about this is that Noah doesn't actually curse Ham. He curses Canaan, his son, to be a servant to his other brothers. There's been a lot of debate as to why that is. Uh, I do think that it's clear that the Lord has already blessed Ham back in chapter, or back in verse 1, And uh, because Ham has already been blessed by God, he cannot be cursed in the same way that once someone has been cursed by God, they cannot be blessed. But I also think that there's a prophetic aspect to this that we're going to come back to in just a moment. But first, if you've been following along with our patterns through the story of Genesis so far, you may have already picked up on this. But if the flood story was a judgment that led to a new creation... And if Adam is functioning, or if Noah is functioning as a new Adam, as, as the head of all humanity who has been commissioned to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and work the ground, then, then this is a new fall. Right? Just as Adam took fruit in, in such a way that led to an awareness of nakedness that needed to be covered and that brought about cursing, so now Noah takes of fruit in a way that brings about an awareness of nakedness that requires covering and results in a curse. So we saw last week very clearly that the flood, although it was a necessary judgment against human sin, did not actually fix the problem of human sin. And we see that very clearly here. Humans continue to be naturally sinful, and they're going to continue being that way. Now, it's one thing to understand what the story is about. 
But it's another thing to understand its significance. Why is this really weird story recorded in the Bible? And going back to the the very beginning of Genesis, I mentioned that one of the interpretive keys that we would want to use, uh, at least on occasion, is to answer the question or to try to answer the question of why the Israelites would need to know this particular piece of information. And many people have suggested that this is an illustration of honoring your father and mother, like the fifth commandment uh, says to do. And I think that's true. But more to the point, and going back to why Canaan is the one who is cursed, I think that the answer is that this story explains that the wickedness of the Canaanite people, who as the Israelites first read this story, they were about to go to war against, the wickedness of the Canaanite people finds its root in the wickedness of their forefather. In other words, this story explains that the Canaanites are who they are because Ham was who he was. It's a like father, like son kind of of correspondence. Also, in the bigger picture, through Ham's action here and Noah's curse of Canaan, we find that the seed of the serpent is still alive and well and on the scene, continuing to oppose God's work through the seed of the woman. In contrast to that, you'll notice that Noah also does not bless Shem personally. He blesses the Lord, the God of Shem. And that wording portrays Shem as being one who is in a right relationship with the Lord. The Lord is Shem's God. And thus we see that Shem is going to be the one through whom the seed of the woman continues on. And the chapter ends by telling us that Noah went on to live 350 years after the flood and then died at the age of 950, which completes the story that we started back in chapter 6. And so in our passage this morning, Noah and his family inhabit the new creation with a new commission to fill the earth with God's image bearers, and we have a new fall as the ongoing nature of human sinfulness is clearly revealed. Nevertheless, in the midst of all this, God establishes his covenant with Noah that he promised to make with him, and he guarantees that he will never again judge the entire world through a flood, which that rainbow symbolizes. And this covenant is why, despite all of the chaos and craziness that takes place in our world on a daily basis, we're all still here because God has made this covenant. As we have established previously in this series, there's going to come a day of final judgment. But until then, the Lord restrains himself from executing total judgment against the earth, not because we deserve it, but because he has chosen and committed himself to be gracious towards humanity. Now, of course, this still leaves the question of salvation unanswered. Just because God isn't judging us right now, doesn't mean that God's not going to judge us. And so judgment now or judgment later, what hope do we actually have? Well, in Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul tells us that our hope is found in Jesus Christ. He tells us that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And then he goes on to explain, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. 
It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. And it is the main point of the entire Bible. All of the centuries of sin and of wickedness that have occurred and that God has passed over formerly in his covenant restraint have been resolved on the cross of Jesus for all who will turn to him in faith. On the cross, Jesus took the punishment that we deserve to receive for our sin so that we can be forgiven if we will place our trust in what he has done to save us. The good news is that we don't have to face judgment because if we will turn to Christ, God counts his punishment for ours. And we should also acknowledge that this this gracious waiting for judgment is often misunderstood by our world. It's misunderstood as either indifference or non-existence on God's part. People look around and they say, yeah, uh, I don't think God's really going to do anything if he's even there. We've been waiting thousands of years. How old is the Bible? How long have we been expecting Jesus to come back? He's nowhere to be seen. At some point, you just have to recognize that this isn't actually real. But the Apostle Peter, who apparently loves the story of Noah's Ark because he draws from it over and over again in his letters, he warns us against this perspective. In his second letter, chapter 3, when he writes, somewhat extended quote, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word the heavens and earth that are now existing are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Reading through this passage reminded me of the the words of the notorious gangster Al Capone, who was known for saying, don't mistake my kindness for weakness. Don't mistake my kindness for weakness. And here Peter is giving us that same advice with God. Just because God hasn't done something yet, does not mean that he is not going to. Be assured, there is coming a day of reckoning where every sin will be dealt with, either having been covered by the death of Jesus on the cross or by us bearing our sin in hell for eternity. But God has given us this season of covenant restraint so that we can seek him and be saved by turning 
to Christ. And so this morning, in light of God's mercy, may we take full advantage of God's covenant grace and be reconciled to him through faith in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, as always, we are thankful for your word. Lord, as we, as we think about the, the reality of human sin and what we truly deserve, and, and your grace, not only in the Garden of Eden and not only at the flood, but at the cross, Lord, that as, as we continue to sin, you continue to, to find ways to show us grace and to save us ultimately through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And Father, now you have given us this, this season of covenant restraint where you do not execute mass judgment like we deserve. You have given us the opportunity to turn to Christ in faith, receiving his perfect righteousness in exchange for our sin. And so, Father, as we've heard your word this morning, I pray uh, that, that your word would take root in our hearts and bear the fruit that you have designed it to this morning. And as we take time to respond, that we would respond in line with your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.